Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, coming to you from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And we have a fantastic topic uh, today, and I have great guests to talk about this. We're going to be talking about pediatric regional anesthesia and the importance of that for all of us who do regional anesthesia to learn from their experience. Uh, I think there's a lot of new information coming out in that world new opportunities, and then also learning that's um, applicable to all of us doing regional anesthesia. So we'll get to that topic in just a few minutes. Before we start, I wanted to make a couple of announcements about upcoming things happening in the society. So if you ever want to know, go to azra.com and at the very top, you'll see a, um, a tab that says events and education, and then you'll see upcoming events. And this is a great place to see a bunch of stuff that's coming up for the society. So we have a cadaver course on pain medicine and MSK ultrasound in June, uh, introduction to perioperative point of care ultrasound. They're doing a basic course and in the future there will be an advanced course too. If those of you who've already done some basic stuff, um, there's an ultrasound regional anesthesia cadaver course. And then of course our fall, annual pain meeting, which is uh, going to be held in New Orleans, Louisiana, November 10th. Um, I highly encourage you to come. This meeting is always well attended. A bunch of fantastic lecturers, workshops, hands-on experiences, exhibitors, everything that you can imagine. And then on top of everything else, it's in New Orleans. So it's a great time. Lots of excellent food. And it's a good time to be in New Orleans in November too. The weather's usually really nice. So I encourage you to go to azra.com, look at these upcoming events, find stuff that are important to you. The other thing I want to emphasize is that there's a lot of online material that Azra puts together as well. So there are uh, hot topics courses and webinars. For those of you who can't always travel, there are some opportunities to learn and get education, both CME and non-CME education in these webinars and online uh, sessions. So we have a whole host of things for everybody involved. I do want to bring back up this uh, pain medicine meeting just to reemphasize. This is going to be the 22nd annual pain meeting in New Orleans. It's at the Marriott, November 10th and 11th. We kind of shortened the timeline to let people have more of a weekend experience instead of having to leave from work. So you'll notice that the timeline is a, a condensed, but it, it is full of amazing information and uh, opportunities to network. Um, and get education. So look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. I'll be there. Um, come say hi to me if you happen to see me in the hallways. I love to meet new people and um, I'll see you guys in New Orleans. All right, let me bring up my uh, guests for today and I'll do some introductions here. Hey, how are you guys? Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining me. So uh, first off, I have Michelle Cars. Uh, she completed training in both general pediatrics and anesthesiology at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell in New York, followed by a fellowship in pediatric anesthesia at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And Dr. Cars is the director of pediatric acute pain service at Northwell Cohen Children's Medical Center and the Director of Continuing Medical Education for the Department of Anesthesiology at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. She's an Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, where she serves as part of the core faculty for the anesthesiology residency. Her interests include point-of-care ultrasound application in pediatrics, as well as research in regional anesthesia, anesthesia techniques in infants and children to minimize opioids in the periop period. So she's the perfect person to bring on here. How are you, Michelle? Thanks for joining me. I'm good. Thank you for having me. 
Okay, and our second guest is Dr. Abhijit Biswas. He's a faculty in the Department of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at London Health Science Center and St. Joseph's Hospital, Western University in London, Ontario. He graduated from uh, his schooling in India and completed anesthesia training in Ireland and Canada. And he has a persistent passion for academic and clinical practice in the field of regional anesthesia and like to continue to develop his career in, in that passion. Uh, he travels a lot with his family, does painting, which I want to talk to you about more. And, um, and then th that's mostly just to keep himself sane as we all do in our busy lives. My, my hobby is photography. I always point out that I've got some sort of different picture back here and that's because I could never paint. I always wanted to be able to paint and I sucked at it. So I ended up having to pick up photography instead. So that's my, my uh, outlet. Uh, how are you? Abhijit? good to uh, have you on here. I'm good. Thanks for inviting you. I'm the director of the pediatric digital service in my hospital. Excellent. So, so again, yes. and now both of you guys are members and active leaders in um, the pediatric special interest group in Azra Pain Medicine. Uh, Michelle, you want to talk a little bit about what that group is and why people should be part of it or what they might be interested in doing with it? Yeah, so we're, um, you know, we've been, I would say, a special interest group for somewhere around 10 years. Um, it was initially started with Dr. Suresh and taken over Dr. Boretsky to really grow pediatric presence within ASRA. And um, it, that the growth of our SIG really corresponded with the growth of pediatric regional anesthesia over the past 10 years, because it really has grown significantly in terms of um, you know, it's prevalence, the hospital, you know, pediatric anesthesiologists that are implementing peds regional as part of their practice. And with that growth, we've grown our SIG and um, have really, you know, dedicated ourselves to educating everybody about safety in ped pediatric regional anesthesia, updates in pediatric regional anesthesia, opportunities for research. Um, and so as, as it's grown really, um, you know, across the board and nationally, our our SIG has grown, and um, we've really got a great group involved in the leadership who's dedicated to educating, um, who's been involved in the recent um, our recent meetings, uh, being on faculty, teaching workshops um, in our POCUS courses. So we really tried to um, expand pediatrics within ASRA, and I think we've realized that it's not just for the pediatric anesthesiologist. We have a lot of practitioners out there that practice both adults and pediatrics. Um, and we're even seeing a shortage nationally of pediatric anesthesiologists, which leads more non-pediatric anesthesiologists to take care of pediatrics. And we want them to be able to feel comfortable doing regional anesthesia, just like they do for the adults in the pediatric population. So we have our yeah, work we cut out. Yeah, no, it's important work. We had a conversation recently about who the right audience is um, for this material, depending on which society's meetings you go to. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was that in Azure Pain Medicine, you have a host of people that work in a variety of settings, but need some skills in pediatric regional. And it may not be that they're trying to do blocks on the sickest, tiniest baby, but that may not be the highest yield thing to learn and that there's a lot of opportunities to learn skills that might be useful in an ambulatory center that has a mixed set of adult and pediatric cases and people who are rotating through peds departments when they are short staffed. We have that problem at our own institution where we have people who routinely do adults are helping fill in 
in the pediatric hospital as well. So um, this this added skill set, even some of the basic skills and not being afraid to do regional for pediatric patients is a huge benefit in maintaining that skill. Uh, Abhijit, I, I want you to mention, because one of the things that um, the group of pediatric regional anesthesiologists have been doing both within Azra Pain Medicine, but also with other societies, is this uh, registry, the Pediatric Regional Anesthesia Network. It's a, it's a massive database. Talk about that a little bit and what value that has and where um, you guys as pediatric regional anesthesiologists uh, fit into that. I think this is something that started with Dr. Suresh, and it is one of the best group or best network we have, and it gives immense data. Like, I know for adult regional anesthesia, we used to always talk about doing anesthesia on when they're awake, okay, and then we're doing somebody on sleep, and again, a smaller baby, so you have, a, like in my practice, I have some adult people also, what Michelle said, coming and helping us with nerve blocks in pediatric. We don't have enough pediatric and regional anesthetists. Sometimes they help, but they have this, they all have these questions, what I'm doing here in adult. So I'm actually sitting in a block room now, in our block room. And uh, they're saying like, what we do in adult is always awake. If I go and do them in, in, when they sleep, am I doing the right thing? What is the chance of my causing a problem? This is exactly what this uh, directory or the PRON database talked to us about. I uh, initially <clears throat> asked me to join and help us also. We are on the process of might be doing that some point of time. But this is the only directory we have, apart from some French studies in North America. This is the only thing we have, which has a huge database and goes from collecting all the side effects and the good effect as well, doing pediatric regional anesthesia and comparing them with the practice in adult and see how safe it is and which is very similar like it looks very safe practice and uh, recently to add to this I'll, we are having an audit of our system and the since it's a mixed hospital we have the pediatric orthopedic surgeon he is basically the qi lead for the whole orthopedics group and we're talking about regional anesthesia services in adults and and peds and doing a qi audit to see what are the outcomes, how things are happening. And the pediatric group was actually very happy with our practice in pediatric because we we are our practice is well defined. We have this literature supporting us and they're actually literally happy and they find this very safe. And like we have loads of complaint from the adult orthopedics compared to the peds and they're actually opposite and they want to expand the program here. So I think these databates adds a lot to our practice. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the original intent of PRAN was to initially, you know, demonstrate safety of pediatric regional anesthesia. And it did its job of demonstrating safety. I think that some of the first studies were caudals and then they were looking at tap blocks. This more recent study um, that you brought up of the 100,000 really is, you know, we have now over 100,000 blocks and they looked at um, everything from neurologic complications, they broke it down by age group from neonates to, you know, greater than 10 years old. And they also looked at incidents of last for those same populations. And it actually showed that we had a very 
um, very low rate. So first of all, the rate of transient neurologic deficits was something like two per 10,000. And the incidence of last was like 0.76 out of 10,000. And there was no cases of permanent neurologic deficit in any of these 100,000 cases. So even as it progressed, this has really just continued to prove as we've increased our blocks and we've increased the different types of blocks that we've done, the incidence of um, complications in pre pediatric regional anesthesia is very low. They actually also looked at older children versus younger children. Um, and when they saw those transient neurologic complications, they saw it more in the older children, but then it's thought maybe they have better reporting, but maybe the younger children have better capacity to recover from peripheral nerve injury. So um, we're not seeing those long-term deficits in the, in the baby. So it was a great study in that it's actually now, it's kind of brought, it's made its way up to this, where now we're seeing all these blocks we're doing in pediatrics. Are we continuing to show that same safety data? And we are. Um, so it just proves what we've known um, all along, and it allows us to keep expanding our practice. Yeah, the, that data, that publication was from 2018, so that data is at least over five years old, and and you know, and growing. Um, and um, I've my understanding is the same as yours that the safety, as the expansion of regional into pediatrics has happened in multiple centers. Um, with a much more diverse set of regional anesthetic techniques, that safety data hasn't gotten worse, which is uh, fantastic to see. And as someone who practices mostly adult regional anesthesia, I've actually been watching this and going, hey, maybe our fear of asleep uh, regional anesthetics is a little bit overstated in the modern era where we have high frequency, high quality ultrasound imaging. We're doing a lot of fascial plane blocks instead of direct nerve blocks. Um, you know, our good friend Jeff Gadsden likes to say every nerve block is a fascial plane block, depending on how you do it. Um, and so, you know, we could potentially do more and more stuff asleep, which is really nice for the patients, um, but actually it could be very safe as well. So we've actually, I've converted to doing a lot of my blocks for patients asleep where there's an opportunity to do that and it doesn't uh, interfere with the overall flow of the operating room. Um, and it saves the patients a lot of trouble that when I give them that option, their face lights up many times that, oh, okay, I don't have to deal with this poking uh, ahead of time. You can do it while I'm not aware. And so that's, there's a lot of advantages to that. You know, in my center also, we did a retrospective study. Uh, again, obviously, way less volume with the, what our blocks we have done for the past two years. We presented this at Astra last year. And again, none had any complications, neurologic complications or any last at all. There may be some failed blocks or delay in OR. That was most our patient satisfaction issues, like family not getting proper consent or getting a handover. But we didn't have any complications at all. Yeah, I mean, those are um, uh, more evidence that, you know, this can be done. And I think that one of the purposes that I see for the pediatric special interest group is to get people over that fear. Um, and I know you guys have seen that where places they're just afraid to even have the conversation with the family or consider that as an option. Uh, Michelle, you want to talk to that a little bit? Because I know you've gone through some hurdles trying to expand pediatric regional, both in your institution and at other places. And that fear seems to be the one of the biggest hurdles. Yeah. So I think, you know, part, I would say when you ask, um, you know, pediatric anesthesiologists kind of across the board, 
what is your, you know, one of the biggest, you know, hurdles in expanding your regional practice. Um, some of it is actually is surgeon resistance, but it's more also their are not their them their fear. They're not having that experience of what the patients, what are the potential complications, um, and. You know, one of the things that I talk about is really making it part of your regular anesthesia practice. This regional shouldn't be this like niche thing. It should be part of every general anesthetic. If there is, it's not just an orthopedic specialty type of, uh, you know, um, benefit that we can offer for pain control. We've now implemented it in every subspecialty where you can have um, a benefit for surgery and not just open surgery, laparoscopic surgeries. We often hear, you know, it's just laparoscopic. Are they going to benefit? What's the risk of doing the block um, versus just something we can give local for laparoscopic incisions? And so we kind of we did the same thing. We started with one block maybe in 2014, um, and we one surgeon, one block, and we started with a rectus sheath block for appendectomies, our most common surgery that we do. And we said, okay, we're going to show our data. And we showed that it was very safe. Patient required little to no opioids, intraoperative, postoperative. We published it with our surgeons. And then we got that buy-in. And then once we got that, and the, and the more we demonstrated that, it allowed us to get that comfort level with the surgeons and partner with them so they were comfortable to expand new blocks into new surgeries. Because every time you say, hey, I have a new block, let's try it on the surgery the surgeon feels a little responsible, right? So there, um, you have to gain that trust from your surgical colleagues and make it a partnership. And so that was what we did at our institution. So let's talk about a couple of articles that you guys brought up, um, speaking of specific cases. So um, this one right here was in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, um, a randomized controlled trial comparing ultrasound-guided pudendal nerve block with ultrasound-guided penile nerve block for analgesia during pediatric circumcision. So a very common procedure that's done. Um, uh, Abhijit, talk to me a little bit about what the problem is here. What do you guys see clinically and why there's a need for regional in these cases? See, in, in, so the, again, uh, in, in pediatric world, uh, unlike adult, what I find is that um, some patients we have in, in a younger age group, they have a lot of complications and opioid sparing is literally helps a lot. If, if you can spare the opioids, and especially younger age group, it'll be very beneficial. So these these nerve blocks helps. So there are two components. One younger age group with multiple complications, we need opioid sparing. And then you have a era where there is a narcotic abuse going on, and which is mainly for from around teenage and onwards. <laughs> I was reading up some articles regarding narcotic abuse in western world and from anesthesia using use of opioids or narcotics in anesthesia in teenage it can transform to 4.5 percent of that in narcotic abuse later in life so any techniques that helps us to reduce that uh, that can be beneficial in a lot of ways and one of them is regional anesthesia uh, and in various functions increasing like i have like i have some studies working on and it's not only opioid narcotic like need for less opioid there are side effects the abuse and other functions quality of recovery uh, <clears throat> like less nausea vomiting their going home is earlier all these things like helps a lot and we are in a challenge post covid area like we have so much of backlog of patients so this also helps us for these patients to go home earlier uh, so 
that's the whole idea about getting nerve blocks and surgical teams and nowadays are also happy for us to do these nerve blocks and this is a study we're talking about parental nerve with a uh, versus the uh, penile nerve block i didn't get to read the whole thing i just read the abstract uh, but it sounds to me like these are the two popular techniques we used and again both uh, there's not a huge difference but again one of put into nerve blocks there's a less use of uh, less less pain but again the opioid use was similar in both the groups uh, that's that's from my practice what about michelle do you have any comments on this yeah so um you know i was I, I was thrilled when they started publishing on the pudendal nerve block a couple years ago. We started doing this for our circumcisions maybe like five years ago, um, where only a couple places were doing it. And um, we, you know, trained on it and we saw really like a significant difference. They were blocked. They needed no opioids, these patients. Um, so much so that actually a couple patients of parents that didn't want general anesthesia were able to get sedation plus a pudendal for a simple circumcision. And so um, we've been looking for more data on this. You know, traditionally, uh, all the the penile cases have for many years been done under caudal. But the problems with caudal is that you age yourself out, you know, very difficult to do a caudal on the big kids, you know, even bigger than three, five years old. Um, the spaces are very tight. It's hard to do. And then also a toddler who has no motor function um, gets very distressed um, and you don't want them running around afterwards. So again, um, limited, you know, limited use for the caudals in those situations. And so when we came with the pudendal that had really, um, and, you know, there is a study showing even better um, pain control because we know that the pudendal lasts longer than the caudal. Um, you can get a pudendal six to eight hours versus a four-hour caudal. And so um, we, you know, this was this was a great uh, article, especially that it's um, a uh, randomized controlled trial, very hard to do in pediatrics. Um, I think the typical you know, thing that we question, we wonder, the surgeon says, oh, I could do a great dorsal penile block. Um, and we're like, no, but our pudendal is better. And this is what we talk about with our surgeons all the time. Well, this actually said, sure, your dorsal penile block is great if you use ultrasound. Our surgeons are not using ultrasound. But we know that a pudendal is superior to a landmark uh, dorsal penile block. So this is showing like, hey, if we actually did the dorsal penile block under ultrasound, versus a pudendal, we can get comparable results. So that's, that's really good to know that there's another option that is just as good as pudendal, um, but still our pudendal is gonna be superior than a landmark technique, um, which we know. So I think that's, that's kind of what they showed in the study that when they were both ultrasound to ultrasound, they were comparable in terms of their, uh, post, uh, their post-operative opioid use. But in terms of you know, our reality, how we translate this oftentimes we're comparing it to the surgeon landmark technique. And so um, pudendal still seems to be a superior uh, block. I happen to favor it. I think it's easy, great block. Um, we've had great parent satisfaction also from it. Um, it lasts longer and we really, uh, it's changed our practice in terms of not giving opioids uh, intraoperatively because you don't need it. It's a dense block. Do you see side effects difference between the penile blocks and the pudendal blocks? Um, any uh, spillover effects to motor blocks or something so like one or the other? What I do tell parents if they so they can get um, 
uh, relaxation of the anorectal region. So if it's a kid who is potty trained, they can actually get um, like a rectal leakage. And so we will tell parents there's a possibility they could have an accident because of that relaxation. However, this is kind of interesting. This is where peds, um, this is where pediatric uh, spills into the adult world. We had a surgeon who's an adult colorectal surgeon who knew we were doing the pudendals for the pediatrics and now requests a pediatric anesthesiologist for her adult hemorrhoidectomies. <laughs> so, um, and let me tell you, those are painful procedures. And yeah. so now the adult colorectal surgeon um, requests the pediatric anesthesiologist to do pudendals for her adult hemorrhoidectomies. There you go. See, there, yeah. there's, a, there's a back and forth, you know, we're learning yeah. from each other. Um, and this study is like these kind of studies are literally helpful. What Vishal was saying, again, very often our practice is led by the surgical team. And again, time, okay, my what time is running, like I'm running late. Okay, there's, okay, there's a difference. If you do ultrasound guide nerve block, I take more time than the surgical surgical team doing landmark guide nerve blocks. So that's an excuse for not doing it. When you show something study like this, okay, this is actually effective, 100% effective uh, compared to what you do. And that it makes a changes. I mean, bring up the patient quality of care. That brings the changes. And this study, like 155 patients is a huge amount in pediatric world. We had a situation recently. I was uh, working with a spine surgeon at our ambulatory center doing a single level discectomy. And one of the other spine surgeons routinely does his own blocks uh, under fluoro when he does back surgery, but this spine surgeon never did any blocks. And I was like, Hey, do you mind if I just jump in there, do an ESP block? And when you're talking about time and he, we were done before he even realized that we had started. And he, he looked at me going, I wanted to watch you guys do it. And I was like, sorry, we didn't have time to wait on you. So, <laughs> so we just kept on going. <laughs> So, I mean, especially when you're doing these asleep, there's a lot of the actually time factors are shortened um, because it's, you don't have to worry about talking through the patient, through the discomfort and all that kind of stuff. So I find that asleep blocks, I'm doing them faster, um, generally speaking, than when I do them awake and, and feel very comfortable doing it that way. I, uh, I want to get to this. Well, I was going to say, I think that's how we bought in to get expanded. So we train everyone that you have your ultrasound set up, ready to go, everything laid out. There's no excuse. Like it should be done efficiently. So our surgeons prep the belly while we're intubating sometimes. So they get, they like we're talking about really efficient. So we're done, ready to go. They're asleep and they block. And I think that's helped that aspect when you show you're part of the team and you're willing to do this fast will help get that partnership to be able to expand your block practice. Yeah. I want to bring up this other article that you sent to me. This is uh, evaluating the role for regional analgesia in children with spina bifida, uh, a category of, you know, neurologic problems that um, anytime a spinal cord problems always made people nervous about regional anesthesia. But this is a retrospective observational study comparing the efficacy of regional anesthesia versus systemic analgesia um, protocols following major urologic surgery. Um, uh, Michelle, you want to start with this one, talk a little bit about why this is important to your world. So, you know, I think, so this was based out of a group, um, that had uh, developed, um, enhanced recovery protocols for pediatric urology surgery. So this was a group of children's hospitals that was looking at their data. And I think, you know, as you mentioned to it, spina bifida 
um, causes a major, you know, real hurdle in terms of using our traditional regional anesthesia techniques, um, specifically epidurals, right? So um, when you, depending on where, um, you know, the lesion is and um, the anatomy of the patient, so it really, it forced us to start thinking out of the box in terms of what are options we have because spina bifida, spina bifida patients undergo major urologic procedures where they do require a regional anesthesia. And so this, you know, what they did is they, um, they really demonstrated that based on um, their retrospective uh, review of what they were doing and in, with enhanced recovery protocols that included some variation per hospital, that regional anesthesia catheters um, have become standard of care for these patients. And so that has really been um, a, a nice, it's really nice to see that progress that we can offer um, regional anesthesia, um, regional anesthesia, catheters for these patients because they do undergo, you know, large incisions for urologic procedures. And, and uh, Abhijit, what, what is your feelings about patients? Because there are in the pediatric world lots of patients with different kinds of neurologic disorders. Um, do you feel that, uh, you know, there is still resistance to doing regional anesthetics in those patients? Do you find that you're having safe experiences doing that? So, uh, again, this, as Michelle was saying, I, I, so first of all, we uh, if I have a patient for booking in for some kind of regional nerve block, we need to have a lot of discussion. So I have um, made a, like a, before I book in a patient, I have a consent form, and that's a diagram of a child and which shows a neuro, like which area of the child has a neuro deficit. And we, we actually, if there is a neuro deficit, uh, then we need to talk with the surgical team. So and, and at, at length with the parents. Okay, like they may have a neurodeficit one place, but as this as this study says that if I do something different, mm -hmm, uh, and that might help the child in post-op recovery better, and with less chances of causing further neurological problem, then I'll rather do it. But again, there's a lot of discussion involved. There is times uh, when when the surgical teams may not agree to it. Like recently I was, we were doing a whole day long, some upper limb surgery and and I wanted to place a catheter, infraclar with the surgical team. Okay, and there's a 10% risk of compartment, but I won't take it, I won't take the risk. So we had a discussion where ultimately we couldn't go in, go for that, so we said, okay, we won't do it. But there are a lot of, again, to start such program, you need to have the trust of the surgical team, they need to trust you. And with this trust, there's a lot of discussion before I book in a case for regional that day. And again, the family is involved with all of three of us. We need to discuss. And if there is actually a major problem with the case, we will discuss as three of us and find a better solution and go from there. Yeah, I find that in the adult world that um, there seems to be a migration um, in central neurologic processes. So particularly we run into patients with MS a lot. Um, and, um, those patients, the data seems to indicate that regional anesthesia is safe and, and effective in those patients, but with patients with peripheral nerve, uh, deficits or nerve at risk, there's still a lot of anxiety and, and concern about doing regional anesthetics for those patients. Um, and, and I think that that's still an evolving, moving kind of discussion, just like you described, um, 
things like compartment syndrome or a prior nerve injury or something of that sort. But it's good to see that, you know, spina bifida, which is, uh, again, in that spinal cord central neurologic system, there is still interest in regional anesthesia in the pediatric world as well. Yeah, I mean, what they what they demonstrated with this basically is that, you know, and there was also, you know, it's interesting because there's also the question if they have different sensory function and no, you know, and I think that at some point was in question, but they demonstrated here that with these multimodal analgesic protocols that they did have a reduction in um, their opioid use and pain scores and benefited from the regional anesthesia catheters. So it really should be the standard of care for these procedures. Yeah, that gets to the old conversation of uh, do little kids hurt and and just because they can't tell us they hurt doesn't mean that they're not hurting. And, and sometimes these aggressive maneuvers are justified when you accept that they're actually having pain, um, which somehow or another we thought that, you know, how could they be having pain? I, I don't understand that conversation. I never quite understood that part of the assumptions when we were we were having those conversations years ago. I think hopefully we're over that hurdle now. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I think we've moved, we've moved in the other direction and then, and then at some point a little too much in that direction. So now we're kind of coming back and, um, thinking our, our, our best strategies for pain management. So, um, we're always evolving here. Well, I want to wind up this conversation. I really appreciate you guys for joining me. I do want to mention for, um, people who are interested in the pediatrics, uh, regional anesthesia. And uh, we didn't talk about it as much, but the, the special interest group is focused on regional anesthesia and pain medicine for pediatric patients. So if you're interested in any spectrum of pain control for patients in the periop period or chronic pain development, um, here's the link, uh, azra.com, uh, has the special interest groups within it. The direct link is here on the screen and you can go there, join the group. If you're a member of Azra pain medicine, um, this is a super engaged, active group of people and have made a real difference in the content and education being discussed in our national meetings, on newsletters, in webinars, and a variety of different locations. So I encourage you to become a part of this organization and, and also contribute if you're passionate about it. Um, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Abhijit, for joining me. It was a really interesting conversation, and um, I'm I don't do pediatric regional anesthesia myself, so I'm really appreciative of having two people that do this day in, day out kind of talk about the topic. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And uh, hopefully we'll see all of you guys at the fall meeting in New Orleans this November, and I'll see you guys there. Thanks. Thank you.